Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors, such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business and stay connected with their clients, while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA benchmarking study is just one of many ways they provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com. Welcome to the RIA Edge podcast. This is Mark Bruno, Managing Director of the Wealth Management Group at Informa, and we are incredibly excited to bring you a very special episode of the RIA Edge podcast. I sat down with Liz Neswold, who's known as one of the top investment bankers in the wealth and asset management industry over the last 20 years. Liz very recently transitioned where she took a role as president of Crescent, one of the fastest growing, one of the largest, and one of the most successful RIA firms. Liz sat down with me at the RIA Edge conference on May 23rd to offer a little bit of a look under the hood, what motivated her to go, quote, in-house and join an RIA, and also what she learned about some of the opportunities in the RIA space as one of the top investment bankers in recent years to some of the largest RIAs advising on some of the largest transactions in our space. So enjoy this very special episode, which was recorded live originally at the RIA Edge conference. I just wanted to recap a little bit of RA Edge yesterday and a little bit of what we've talked about this morning. We obviously touched on a lot of different elements of M&A and valuation. We had some incredible discussions yesterday with several buyers who have given their perspective, not just on the state of M&A activity in the RA industry, but really where we're going from here, right? And that's what we're gonna do for the rest of the day here today. We're gonna pick up where we left off yesterday, where we were focused on M&A, we were focused on valuations, and we'll talk a little bit more about some of the growth opportunities in the RA channel. We'll also spend a fair amount of time on talent, um, which we know is at the top of the list when it comes to both challenges and opportunities for many of you in the room. But with that, I wanted to introduce our next speaker in just one moment because I have to say, first and foremost, I have known her for a very long time, but not in this capacity. Liz Nesvold will come out in just one moment. Liz and I probably first met 15 years ago when I was a reporter covering asset management and she was an investment banker. I do believe that this is one of her first presentations that she's done in her brand new role where she has left the investment banking world and is now president of an RIA, Crescent. So I'm really looking forward to telling her story and learning more about her transition and also her perspective on growth opportunities in the RIA space. So please, a warm welcome and round of applause for Liz Nesbold. There you go. Hi, Liz. Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Is this officially your first fireside chat <laughs> within since, in RIA? Since I found the ladies' room and got my key card, yes. <laughs> Well, thank you. I know you're very busy, and I know you're still relatively new in your role, and we will absolutely talk a little bit about some of the areas that you're focused on in just a moment. I really want to learn more about Crescent and where you're seeing some opportunities. But having been one of the leading deal makers in the space, I think it's probably just good for those in the audience that are not familiar with your background in history, if they don't remember the cover of that magazine that had <laughs> the queen of deal making. Please, a little bit of background color and context on your areas. Oh, sure, sure. I'm a career investment banker turned 
RIA advisor. <laughs> I have 30 years covering firms in the wealth and asset management space, and a lot of our practice that, that people knew about related to mergers and acquisitions, uh, the things that were less sexy and, and didn't get as much press were the McKinsey-like work that we would do around succession planning, equitization of next generation, thinking about service offering, pricing model, compensation structure, et cetera. But that's what I've been doing for three decades, and now I'm doing something different. Three decades, that's it? Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're on to your second act. Which I was a teen when I started. <laughs> I'm really interested to learn, you know, having so much exposure mm -hmm. right, to the wealth management industry, but the RIA channel in particular over the last few years. I mean, I think about just the last five years of M&A activity right, in the RIA channel. And you know, I was doing the research for quite some time. I mean, there were years where there were 200, 300 deals that were taking place, right? So having ex as much exposure, not just to the deal-making activity, but all the firms and the different parties involved, what made you want to just dive right in and actually join NRA? <laughs> I, I, I didn't know that this is where I would land. So after 30 years, I left my career. So my mother would give me the sage advice when I was young, and she always said, never leave a job until you have a job. I didn't do that. So I left. I took the obligatory 90-day garden leave and sat there for the first week and started to explore what did I want to do, what could I do with these skills that I had, and that's where I started to think about, well, I could go back into the M&A industry in some capacity, but for me, leaning into the industry that I love felt like such a natural fit. So I, I had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with the two co-founders of Crescent, Stein and Eric Becker, and uh, sort of became a, a match made in heaven. Yeah, what did you learn just from getting as much access? Because as a banker, you learn everything there is to learn about the, your clients, right? And also whoever is on the other side of the table, too. Sure. Were there certain things, not specific to Crescent, but just looking at the RA industry in general, that really spoke to you, right, and made you think this is actually an opportunity I really want to explore or an industry that I want to explore in a different seat. Mm -hmm. As an advisor, I, I would make a point to check in with clients after they did their big event. And even checking in six months, a year later, it felt like there was more that might have been missed in some instances, meaning more counsel that they could benefit from. And so for me, stepping in, it really is the chance to see if I can shape a business in the way that if I could sit with my clients throughout the first year, the second year post their integration, I might have more impact on an organization. So it's kind of a, it's still a little mind blowing for me that I am doing what I'm doing, but it, it's really exciting to be able to put my fingerprints on something. And there are, I mean, there are so many wonderful partnership models, acquirers, deals left to be done maybe in my, in my forward look, but it just felt like this is a different way to approach it and not by knowing what everybody's playbook is, but rather by studying the model that I'm given. And then when you look at, you know, we talk about growth at the RA Edge events, podcasts, research, everything is about growth, whether it's growth or M&A, organic growth. I am curious, I mean, what was it that you saw in perhaps not just the recent growth rates, but the growth opportunities in the RA space that 
you pushed you even you know, further into the, the deep end of the pool, so oh, to speak. Oh, boy. <laughs> this is such an amazing industry. It really is. It, it's crazy to think that I've been here for this long covering these firms, but uh, people used to speak about the RA industry as carriage trade, a cottage industry, practices, but now we're evolving, we're growing up, and it just feels to me like if we're thinking about a baseball game, my husband, who's in the audience, is a huge baseball fan, Yankees. But that being said, <laughs> it feels like the fourth or fifth inning, but now the game is, it's almost like Yankees and Red Sox, and we're going into 13 or 14 innings in overtime. So it really does feel like there's a lot more to come because the industry, when I started, all those years ago was 8,000 registered investment advisors made up of investment counselors, financial planners, and then asset managers. And now today, maybe there are 15,000 registered investment advisors. And, and that's not even counting the 1099 firms that sit on other people's platforms that are registered through one large RIA. And just as far as, I, I love the baseball, but the discussion around sort of maturity when sure. it comes to... The, the RIA channel. So if we're in the fourth or fifth inning, right, M&A has obviously had a huge role in sort of accelerating yes. the maturity of the industry. What impact would you say some of the record levels of M&A that we've seen over the last three or four years, yes. what impact has that had on the firms in this room? And just keep in mind that this is probably the larger the upper end, right? How has all of that M&A activity substantially changed the composition of the upper end of oh the RIA channel? The, it, I would say over the last decade, it's been a great pace of activity. If we're just looking at the last two or three years, it felt like breakneck pace of activity. So a, a little, as a M&A practitioner, it was a little scary. It felt like there's a, a little frothiness. Some players getting over their skis, lower for longer, created a lot more leverage opportunity for the industry. So while I'm excited about the pace of activity, I believe there's still much more to come. A little bit of slowing isn't a bad thing. Gives the industry and the large firms a chance to digest some and really think holistically and strategically about the business. But when you think about, let's separate the large firms, I think this next wave of activity is gonna benefit small to middle-sized firms, meaning if you're just measuring purely percentage growth rate, I think there is a huge opportunity for combinations. So much of the deal doing over the last three years has been driven by cash proceeds. There is a wonderful opportunity to keep people highly equitized, but really lean into partnership and combinations, and that's what I think we're gonna see over the next five years. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting, and I would love to get your take, because we did a session yesterday where we were talking with very active buyers or some very active investment bankers and we got their state of the state on M&A activity, right? And we're always talking about you know, activity levels or the mm -hmm. rates, the number of deals that get done. One thing we never really come back to though, right, is the success rate, Yes. right? And with hundreds of deals getting done each year for the last, let's call it four to five years, probably have some, a really good sample size to say how many of these deals actually worked, how many were successful, right? So I have a two-part question for you, because <laughs> right? you can talk about it now. How many, if you had to ballpark it, what percentage of deals that get done in the RIA industry are, one, successful, and then two, how do you define success? Right, well, uh, probably the second part from the first, 
You know, success for me, since we're dealing with human capital, intangible assets, is really about the connectivity of those people. Are the people still there? Are they still in their seats? Are they still engaged? And so measuring that success, part of the proliferation of this industry is uh, not everybody's going to be happy with every deal, especially the larger they are and more impactful people may shake out. But that creates the next RIA opportunity for a startup. You know, having most of the people in an organization, having a high retention rate of those clients who came with, that to me is success. Again, not everybody is always gonna love, people don't like change, right? Clients don't like change, advisors don't like change, and transacting is change. So that for me is the, the measurement for success, not you know, did we meet our IRR um, or MOIC, MOIC return profile. It really is more a function of the people staying. And so now if you think about success rate, we sort of used to liken it, M&A to, it is a marriage. And you know, marriage rates, unfortunately, especially through COVID, <laughs> I, I like to think of the marriage continuity. So maybe marriage continuity is 45%. I would say on the deal front, it probably mirrors the same. Maybe half the deals really stand the test of time. And one would argue, you know, that's, I, I'm a glass half full girl, so that's pretty good success because the proliferation of the industry, we continue on, create new firms. And I appreciate you being honest, right? Because it's difficult to really put a number on that success rate, but likening it to divorce feels right too, in some ways, in a bizarre way. I should just just build on that question before we talk a little bit about Crescent. Maybe we break success into two parts, right? We think about what does success look like from a buyer's perspective, but also what does success look like from a seller's perspective? Because I've had a lot of conversations with people over the last couple of days who are potentially looking to make an acquisition, right? Maybe they made an acquisition a year or two years ago. They're not professional buyers, serial acquirers, or large sort of mega RIAs, but they're looking at M&A as a tool to growth, right? So from that perspective, what does success look like? Right. Well, and let's think about what makes for success. So back to the, I hate to say a 50%, we call it a success rate, 50% success rate. Successful deals have a couple of characteristics that are common, um, and it starts with the integration and so and the foundation of the partnership. So let's assume, because this is what's happening, a disproportionate share of the firms are finding homes with strategic partners Integration is the first measure of how is this new partnership going. And so whether it's buyer or seller, it's incumbent upon both parties to start to think about that before the deal closes, to start mapping out the uncomfortable conversations before the deal closes and to be able to bring parties to the table from both sides to really shepherd that process through. And then back to you know success, It's about the deal structure, so you have to find balance. In a really, really hot market, it's easy to try and push the envelope as a banker, but at the end of the day, and we've represented both buyers and sellers, never at the same time, but you know, a sell-side client will say, whose side are you on at some point? And the answer is, I'm on your side, and you, you want to make sure you're thinking about this holistically and for the long term, 
because if we get over our skis on the asks and if we get those asks, you got to live with that deal. So back to, you know, what's a success out, successful outcome look like for a seller? Sometimes for a founder that has a short time horizon, it's about the economics mm -hmm. of the deal and the ability to take hats off that you don't like. But it's important to think about what does success look like for the next generation of talent that's coming up through the system and will be there for a much longer time horizon. You know, on the buy side, it's a little bit different. Often it's, you know, are we successful in expanding in a geography? Are we successful in adding wonderful talent? Because most of the M&A, think about it as a glorified hiring opportunity. It's hard to find, we've heard this consistently in, in all of the panels, it is hard to find talented folks and often they come by way of acquisition. And so for a buyer it could be, you know, we need more people in financial planning and estate planning and tax prep, the compliance aspect, family office services. So that may be the check the box measure for the buyer on top of, you know, is this accretive to our equity? Sure. I think it's interesting from the seller perspective. I my experience is the composition of sellers has changed quite a bit. It's no longer just sellers looking for an immediate or you know, six to 12 month exit. M&A is actually a meaningful growth tool, right? Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways. So you've seen more of the sell and stay, but what's even more interesting, right? Is everybody goes in with you know, a similar set of priorities. I want a partner that it, you know, I want to put my clients first, employees second, and then the, the price is third, right? Then you actually get involved in the deal process. And, things change very quickly, right? How is that sort of netting out right now? I know how important, obviously, you know, that the deal price is to the seller, and I know where we are just sort of in the valuation cycle right now. Any advice that you would have for anybody who is a potential seller here on how to prioritize and ultimately how to appropriately define success before you go into a deal? Oh, and, and you, you hit the three, top three highlights here, which is clients first. So. And I said this, I was on a panel a year ago with four acquirers and then me, the M&A practitioner, and I said, clients don't care if you did 10 deals this year. They don't. They care about their advisor. Is their advisor still their advisor? They care about the capabilities, the care for their, the family, helping them navigate the financial complexities and other things in their life. So if clients really are coming first, then when you think about partnership opportunity, it has to be around what will this transaction do to benefit the client. And, and listen, I, I'm, I'm realistic here. I know invariably people are trying to strive for liquidity in an illiquid asset, trying to think about continuity planning, a whole host of things that really relate to the advisor and the team itself. But clients do need to come first and so think in terms of what can we do to better serve our clients. And it's one of those crazy things. If you start there and that's on your partnership list, invariably it gets easier to winnow down who will matter as a potential partner to you and who really won't because you're sizing up on behalf of the clients. And it's a, it's a very confusing time in the marketplace because Everybody sounds great, everybody's got their shtick, so now it has to be about the client first, and then you can get to the other parts of the equation. I appreciate that, and I think it was important to spend some time on it because there's so much headline attention that goes to the deal activity 
there's so much attention that goes to the valuation, but we never come back to what happens after the close. Yes. We don't take the time to prioritize what does success look like from both perspectives going in and actually have meaningful conversations about it. And then very rarely does that question, is this good for the client, yes. right, get asked. So thank you. Appreciate that. Now on to Crescent. I want to learn a little bit more about some of the things that you're focused on. I imagine you're focused on everything. Right? <laughs> I imagine you have a 30, 60, 90 day plan, but I'm, I'm very curious. You talked a little bit about what drew you to Crescent. Maybe we can just start with a little bit more context because Crescent is an enormous startup in a lot of ways. In it fact, really that's actually is. how you described it to it me. It is. So your role it, within Crescent, what will you be focused on initially? And then what is the longer term vision? Oh my goodness. So just by way of background, Crescent started in 2017 and we just broke through 400 people. We're on our way to 40 billion in assets. So it is a very fast startup. But when you peel back the layers of the onion, it is, it is essentially and predominantly four large partnerships that came together. So they have a very long tenure, and these actually, all four of them were my clients. <laughs> so it worked out pretty well that I step in. The role that I'm in is a first time ever. And it's interesting to be as large as we are now and to have two co-founders and then no business president. So this was when I, I was doing my soul searching these two co-founders who I've known since they were blueprinting what they wanted to build for their own family office, and that's really the genesis of Crossed, you know, pitched me way back when on, you know, this is the design, pick my brain, and then we ended up doing three deals together. I sat on the other side, and the fourth was one of my clients actually just joined out of First Republic. But in doing so, I said, well, so what's the job that you have for me? And they said, well, here are 15 things that we think somebody should be focused on. And I said, that sounds like a terrible job. I'm not interested. And so I said, no. And then they came back and said, okay, we've reframed it a little bit. Come spend a couple of days with us. And I did. I came down to Florida in the winter. That's not all bad. And they said, we want, we need a president. We know we need it. We feel like that's part of our continuity planning. We've never had one before. What if we gave you a job where we had a couple people who are logically reporting into you, and then we gave you a blank sheet of paper and you could figure it out as you went along. And so for an analyst <laughs> who gets to study a business, it became this awesome opportunity to step into this business and so the role, if you would ask me on day one, I would tell you I have a 100-day plan in place and, and I don't exactly know what I'm doing, but I'll figure it out. I have much better insight going into my fourth week on what I will do. And they challenged me, and these are two gentlemen who made their money in private equity and in starting businesses, so venture capital and, and entrepreneurial opportunities of their own. They said, question everything, investigate everything, challenge everything, because the vision for Crescent, even though we're only six years old, was really a hundred year vision. They wanted to be able to serve their next generation and next generation beyond that, so their grandchildren and beyond that, and to create a blueprint or influence a blueprint for a hundred year partnership was incredible. It was just an incredible opportunity. Yeah, I, I'm 
legitimately fascinated by the move, right? Because you had so much access to so many different firms. So it says something about Crescent that you said, you know what, this is the one. Did they reduce the list from 15 to 14? <laughs> it really was a terrible job <laughs> that they first pitched me on. But I mean, there are logical things that will that now do roll up under me. Uh, mergers and acquisitions is obviously something mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pretty good at. You know, family office services, strategy, There's just a a lot of logical areas to roll up, but then beyond that, it's it's looking at everything. So I don't know if there are any technologists or custodians in the room, but I'm going to look at everything. I brought in a woman who's now, we changed her title already. That's how we can pivot at Crescent. She came in as my chief of staff, and we quickly determined that she would spend her time on strategy and planning with me. We are going around the country to meet everybody, all 400 plus people, and really investigate their experience. So what's your experience from if you joined early on to today? What is your experience if you came by way of acquisition? We challenge everything, we look at everything, we look at every service offering, the pricing, because we're dealing with ultra-affluent, we're gonna look at pricing on complexity and does that measure up across the whole you know, spectrum of advisors? So it's, it's really quite exciting. Yeah, and considering I talked with your chief of staff about two weeks ago and she already has a different role, I'd say she you're does. moving at speed, right? <laughs> we are. I should ask about some of the growth opportunities that you see for Crescent. I actually did an RIA Edge podcast with it maybe about a year, year and a half ago. And there was some discussion about the digital marketing mm-hmm. right, that, you, that you've done. And if I'm remembering it correctly, and it's been a long week and it's only Tuesday, <laughs> uh, I think the, the mention was that there were a billion dollars in net new assets added in 2021 strictly from digital marketing, if I'm correct, right? So they've already cracked some kind of code there because I've never heard of another firm that has brought in that much money through legitimate marketing. Is that another area where you still see growth opportunities? And if so, you know, how are you continuing or how might you continue to invest in that? Yeah, the, this is an area that came by way of one of the acquisitions, a firm called Pegnato Carp, who is very early in digital engagement to source client opportunities. And it is, it is as I did my homework for 90 days, and they interviewed me, I interviewed them. I spent time understanding the digital engagement tools and how they could really frame out the service offering to a constituency that was more of an ultra-affluent constituent. And here's what we found out. Centimillionaires and billionaires use Google too. So they've, we, we, I've got to get used to saying we, (laughs) have been able to, it's all still in the lab, but there's some early successes that are pretty impressive, which is to try and figure out how to target a geography, how to think about how you present your service offering, what is the experience from the time somebody clicks through and answers a couple of questions, and that information goes into a database, gets uploaded to somebody, and it's a human who is the director of traffic, and how it goes from that human, which is now a team, to the right founder, and we have a number of founders who came by their own RAs in and who were part of the founding of Crusted. There's that initial call. How does that initial call go? What is being sold to that prospect? How does it move into the team who will invariably serve that client? And so far with this digital engagement tool, within 60 to 90 days, we're having successes 
in the 15 to 17% rate, meaning someone clicks through, someone takes that first conversation, you know, how successful can, can we be? And then if you were in Kitsis's, if any of you saw Michael Kitsis, when we think about the client acquisition cost, the CAC, how does that feed into the profitability? How, how do we then compensate people for taking that relationship? It really still is in the lab, but we're pretty far in our formation. So it's something that I'd not seen to this level with other firms, and it's quite exciting. It's not the only channel by which we, we try to go grow, and it's because it's still early days. For me, the best measurement will be retention rate of clients. So if they came in through that digital lead, did they stay five years, seven years, 10 years longer? The proof will be in the pudding longer term but so far pretty impressive. Yeah, it's, a, it's very impressive. It is very unique. You'd think there would be a little bit more, but there's not a tremendous amount. And I will say, after I did, or before I did the podcast interview, I actually did a fair amount of research on Cresset, and it was on the website. I was doing lots of Google searches. Within 24 hours, I started getting targeted with <laughs> ads <laughs> on Google. We know you're out right? there. And I was like, okay, right, it's happening, yeah. which is a good thing. Yeah. I do just want to pause for one moment. Are there any specific questions for Liz? I did have some questions just on how you're viewing M&A in your new seat at Cresset, but by show of hands, anybody who had a quick question that we wanted to work into the conversation? Yeah. Uh, that's a really good question. And, you know, often it starts with how were you counseled going into a transaction? And I'm not here to pitch for there are a number of bankers in the seats, and they're all quite capable, by the way. But sometimes people don't have good advice going into the marriage. So it's how you structured the deal, how is it documented? So the four corners of the document matters in terms of how you start your relationship with your partner. If that is not well thought through between both seller and buyer, so there is a happy medium, that is the beginning of the fracture of the relationship. Beyond that, it really is so much about the human experience. How did integration go? Did you have a bumpy integration? Are there things that were promised that weren't delivered? Integration mapping, as I mentioned before, it really has to start early on. So before you ink the deal, when you know you're going forward with one group in particular, you need to start to put an integration committee together on both sides of the equation. You need to make sure you've done your HOV home office visit and you've gotten to know the people that you'll interact with because that's the early way to improve those odds. When it is just about you know, the speed at which we transact, there are already, the, the signs are already pointing against that deal working out for the long term. Beyond that, back to the human capital piece, it is who championed the deal and is that person still here one year, two years, five years later? And so, you know, banks had a bad rap of doing these acquisitions and they didn't stand the test of time. And often that was, there are some banks who've done an extraordinary job, but often it came back to who championed the deal and is that person still in the CEO seat or does somebody new come in and say, hey, why'd we buy that thing over there? We never integrated it. It's a nuisance. Let's get rid of it. So there are a lot of reasons why they can succeed. And it really is the early formation of the partnership that matters the most. And this is a crazy thing to say because people live and breathe by the four corners of your deal document. 
but you can't document everything, right? There's no way to anticipate every single thing that may come up as you are partners together, and you have to be prepared to talk about it. The buyer who says, oh, that's not in the document, sorry, we can't factor that into the equation, that's the one who's not gonna have the people there for the longer term. I've had clients who've done just an extraordinary job. Often I do get phone calls when I was a banker about, hey, this came up, how do we handle it? You know, we've just, in 2008, I got a bunch of phone calls, 2008, 2009, that related to earnouts, right? So the world had just gone nuts and nobody anticipated material adverse change or effect clauses by the market upheaval. And so we had to rethink how we looked at that and I had a number of clients on the buy side who actually pushed the earnout out. They spent time to talk to the sellers to say, hey, this is unprecedented, could never have envisioned this, let's talk about moving that earnout out so you don't feel like you were penalized by this market upheaval. So those are the types of things when you think about a marriage, right? Not everything's rosy. You have to sit down and talk and sometimes you have to bring a counselor in, a coach, your investment banker, and retool the deal. So hopefully people will take that. If there are any buyers in the room, everybody's a buyer, we, we know that. Think about that in the context of your partnership and that is the best way to keep that retention rate really, really high with advisors and, and the people who came to join you by way of acquisition. It's a great question. Thank you very much for asking, and I'm glad I got to listen to that. I actually felt like I could sit back and just listen. I remember that. <laughs> so if I was, going back to when we first met, I was a reporter, right? Mm -hmm. And if I was still a reporter, I think if I saw the news that you were joining Crescent, the first question I would ask is, what signal does an investment banker taking over as the president of Crescent send about Crescent's interest in doing more deals, right? And I know it's obviously a much more dynamic role, right? But what should we expect, and what are you looking at in terms of M&A activity in your new seat. And everybody read it that way initially, so I got about 50 phone calls from private equity. <laughs> Who has capital will travel. But that being said, coming into this role, of course there will be M&A activity. As I go around the country, part of it is to find out, do people feel like they have scale in market? Do they feel like they have the talent at the local level that they need? And that may come by way of whether it's a, a, a combination, an aqua hire and aqua hires are it could be a small team that joins that looks almost like a hiring but it really is a wonderful talent acquisition it could be that it could be service offering so we're we rolled out several years back family office services for substantial families and that includes a whole host of things it may take us into another area where we do that via acquisition but when you think about this 100-year vision, and that is really where these two co-founders came to the table, let's build something that lives beyond our time on this planet, that means in my role I need to think about capital need, I need to think about, so we have an equity plan, how does somebody get liquidity? Do they have to you know, wait 20 years and then retire out to get some liquidity? Or can I work to build a marketplace where annually we can have buying and selling at fair value where we might be able to finance next generation who wants to buy more equity and really think holistically about how we do that? How do we use leverage? I, I mean, you buy a house 
It's not all equity dollars. A little leverage is a good thing in this space. A lot of leverage, not so much, but how do we use leverage? How will we bring a capital partner in? And we will at some point bring it in in the minority because the way we are composed of owners is 70% employee ownership, 30% clients. Clients may not want to stay beyond their tenure and pass this equity to their offspring. So we've got to think about all of that. So all of that rests on this, those 15 jobs that I actually did sign up for. That's in my bailiwick. And so I've got to think through some of that as well. So it's not just all M&A. It really is thinking about this partnership that will be a partnership and stand the test of time. I appreciate that. I knew it was obviously much more dynamic. Otherwise, you probably would have stayed in an investment bank. <laughs> I should also ask, I think I read that you are also a, a part owner of the firm to you, that you bought into Crested. If, if anything at all, right, my second question as a reporter would, would have been, tongue-in-cheek, of course, what does that say about the state yeah. of valuations in yeah. the RAA industry? Wow, well, it's, <laughs> I, you know what, I, I love being able to say I'm G2. It makes me feel young. <laughs> so, but I, I wrote a check to come be a partner. There was, here's the deal as president, but then I leaned in because, you know, you've got to eat the cooking. And so being on the buy side of this, had to scrub the valuation, understand the, the nuances of how they were framing out this valuation, which you know, we're raising or closing out Series E. So we are doing a formal raise. And so it's interesting to look from a very different lens than I have historically. But as you think about the industry more broadly, we, we did get to top evaluations for larger platforms. And some of that came through the use of leverage. When, when money was free, it was easy to say, sign me up for some of that good leverage. But now we're at a point where valuations are softening some, but they're not going to be what they were when I started in the industry. They're not even going to be what they were 10 years ago. There's in my, my team who's here. We did this regression analysis, and we looked at deal pricing over... 10 years ago, five years ago, three years ago, and then right when I left. And the regression lines kept moving up and up and up. And now what we're seeing is some softening, but it still means that there are pricing points that are still very attractive, but it, it's back to how you structure that. Because rarely does someone say, here's a big price tag and I'm going to, here's a pile of cash and give it all to you today, and I hope you show up tomorrow for work. That is not how the deals are structured. So price is made up of so many different things. It could be a function of retention and a growth element and a reallocation of value to next generation who doesn't own much equity. So it's a bundle, and then we as, as bankers size it all up, and we say, okay, here's the multiple. And Every single banker looking at the same deal will have a different multiple because they're using different assumptions, different present value, different growth rates. So be careful what you hear in coffee chatter, but make sure that there is balance as we get to that pricing level. But it's a little bit softer, but it's, it's never going to be what it was in the olden days. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And I, yeah, I think one thing we didn't touch on when we talked about M&A, we've talked about valuations. Learned a lot about Crescent and what your vision is there, so thank you for that. We do have a panel coming up in a minute that is about talent, right? Mm -hmm. And so much discussion 
this week has been about this battle for talent. We haven't directly had the conversation, but it's come up in almost every single panel discussion. I was in a think tank yesterday where we were talking about you know, 75% of the RAs and some research projects that we've done recently are hiring for a brand new position. They tend to be more you know, support positions than they are lead advisors, but there seems to be more demand than there is supply. So it leads to sort of a natural question when we talk about M&A. I've been asked, like, is it easier to hire or acquire talent? Right? So with that talent panel coming up in a second, I would ask you that question. Right? Is it easier to hire or is it easier to acquire talent right now, particularly when you're looking for you know, advisory talent, lead advisors, right? Yeah. that can be that true G2? And that, that's a tough question. It seems loaded. I think you have to do both if you're growing as a growing firm, meaning it's often easier to find people who already work well together that were part of a you know, half a billion dollar, billion dollar RIA in a market that you might only have a couple folks in. But the hiring is critically important too. And what we do is we use a PI predictive index. Every person that recruits in for a job will fill out the PI. And it, it takes only six minutes, and I, I did it the first time, so I had to do it myself. And I'm thinking, how is this possibly going to say who I am? And then I got my results back, and they were spot on, which was crazy. But for us, in trying to figure out the seats that we're filling, we need to continue to hire. We always have open recs. We're always looking for talent. And the talent may come by way of acquisition, partnership, merger, could be joint ventures where we're sharing talent. And it definitely is coming by way of hiring. But you know how disruptive it is when people leave. So making sure you have the right person on the bus in the right seat is important. And sometimes, and this is what I'm finding as I'm doing my first wave of expedition around the country, we have incredible talent. And some of that talent is not actually in the right seat or they're splitting, they're hopping across the bus from seat to seat. My job is to make sure that excellent talent stays on the bus. And if we need to refine the role, let's do it so that we don't lose that person because they have a lot to offer Crescent. So even when you think maybe you don't have the right person, I don't know if it's a, a coach, that you start with doing some more cognitive behavior research to figure out is there another role, but talent is precious. This is a human capital intensive business where humans serve other humans, so we need to get that right. I appreciate that. I can't thank you enough for being as gracious with your time as you have been. You've made us a priority in your first 30 days. <laughs> I am really excited to keep following what you're doing at Crescent. I'm excited to learn more about your tour that you're embarking on over the next couple of months now. But thank you for spending time with us, and we really appreciate you coming by. Oh, thank today. you so much for having me. Thank you. Warm round of applause for Liz. Thank you, Liz. Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business and stay connected with their clients, while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA benchmarking study is just one of many ways they provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com.